Thanks for understanding. You know, I, um, I love Proverbs, so today, um, here's one from Proverbs, verse or chapter 12, same as our date. Verse 11, he who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Interesting there to watch God draw um, a contrast between industry and idleness, I think there's who. So today we're finishing, um, um, it's the last in a series where we've talked about untwisting, um, unraveling scriptures that get bird-nested. They're commonly bird-nested. If you're a fisherman, you know what that means. When the reel, you cast and you don't hold your thumb on the thing and, um, and it looks like that. And we can actually do that sometimes with the word um, by, by casting scriptures, but not really having our fingers on the word of God. And we say things a little bit wrong, and the world picks that up, and they actually quote them repeatedly, incorrectly. And, and uh, so we want, we want to talk, and this is the last of a series of, about misquoted, misunderstood scriptures. And I want to I start today by asking just a simple little question. How many of you would, you know, <clears throat> would say that if you had just a little bit more money, Life would be a little better, a little bit easier. Just if you're, like, come on. <laughs> my, my hands. Well, I mean, I'm, I, that's my natural reaction. Of course, I could. Things would be better if I had a little bit more money. I mean, that's obviously what we'd say. And so, in order to make that happen today, we secretly had the ushers in advance put a hundred dollar bill under ten seats randomly in the room. <laughs> I see nobody is diving on the floor looking underneath your seat. You all. Did the math and said, you know, there's no way that tightwad's going to give away a thousand bucks. But wouldn't it be amazing if that happened? Um, it'd be incredible. That leads to um, the most, the big misquoted verse that I want to talk about today, because so many people say this, and it's one of the most misquoted scriptures of the Bible, and that's this money is the root of all evil. Ever heard that before? Money is the root of all. It's, it's just um, really commonly and frequently said, but it's an absolute misquote. Here, here's, a, here's an example from a restaurant. Tip jar. I kind of like it. It says, money is the root of all evil. Free yourself from some of the evil and leave us a tip. <laughs> we'll be glad to take that evil off your hands. And many people think that's what the Bible teaches about money, is that it's the root of all evil. But the Bible does not teach that. It doesn't. Um, and here's what the Holy Spirit is actually teaching, and um, the, the scripture that comes up is in Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, and here's the accurate way to quote this verse. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The King James says the love of money is the root of all evil, um, but it's the love of money. It's not money, but it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, the love of money. And if you're like most people, you're going to say, well, the good news here is that that's not me. I mean, um, that's, that's some other rich, greedy you know, person who loves money, but that's not me. I don't love money very much. I mean, but, I, I mean, but how do we discern if we actually do love money or not? I mean, how do we discern that? Interestingly enough, the Word of God helps us out with this, and um, it helps us out very clearly. Solomon, King Solomon, who scriptures say was the wisest man who ever lived, says this, and this comes out of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Never satisfied with their money. And when I look at that definition, whoever loves money never has enough, suddenly it makes me a little more uncomfortable about my own spiritual position. Whoever loves money never has enough. A little more would make life better, make me happy. Whoever 
loves wealth is never satisfied with her income. And the reason that that hits close is, for me, is because I can clearly remember multiple times in my life where, um, you, know, you know, when Lisa and I first got married and we made this amount of money, I say that because I can remember when we first got married um, <clears throat> as babies that my weekly pay was 165.50 a week. Of course, that was in the olden days, and that was a lot of money, I suppose. No, it was not much money then. Um, and um, so we made this much, and, I, and, uh, and other people that I worked with made this much. And I considered, you know, man, honey, if we ever make that much, we're going to have it made. We will just be in tall cotton. It's going to be really, really good. And then I remember another time, you know, later, I'd been married a few years, and I made this, this similar comment to, I was talking with my secretary back when we had secretaries, back when the word secretary wasn't a denigrating term, but she was my secretary. And I don't get that anyway, by the way. I think, you know, I've been somebody's assistant a lot of times in my life. A lot of my bosses have been women over the years. Now, I had trouble with that, but that's a, you know, that's a rabbit trail. I don't need to go there. But I made this offhand comment to her, and I can't imagine how people who make, and I filled in the amount, that amount of money per month could possibly find a way to spend that much money a month. And to me, it was a lot of money. And I realized when I looked at her face that I was talking about her. She, she, she worked for me in a church, and she didn't need to work. She just wanted to stay busy. Her husband had a, a, a position in the state of Washington, and he was way, way up the food chain, made quite a lot of money, I'm certain, less or more than the threshold number I had tossed into the comment. And I made, I can't imagine how people who make this much money a month could even find a way to spend it. I looked at her face, and I, and I read into her eyes in that moment. It's like, she's thinking, well, I make that much, and it's all gone every month, you know? It's like, I kind of thought like, okay. And I realized I was talking about her. In fact, I, you know, if I asked you the question, and you were really, really, really honest. Now, don't well, be honest, but don't answer the question, okay? Let's go there. If, you're, if you were to ask this question, it might be real revealing about maybe where your heart is on this topic, where it stands with money. Here's the question. How much do you actually need to have to be happy? How much do you really need to be happy? I mean, I think most people would say just a little bit more. A little bit more. Just a little bit more. Solomon said, whoever loves money never has enough. They're never satisfied with their income. And in 1 Timothy 6.10, Scripture says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It might hit, might hit a little bit closer to home for many of us than we really want to acknowledge. You know, we've been learning over this series how to accurately, how to learn how to accurately interpret and understand Scripture. How do we do this? And we've talked about three steps that we take. The first one is to understand the context. So we want to find out who wrote the Scripture, who they were writing it to, what were the circumstances, why, when did it happen, what, what, what was happening before and after the verse. The second thing is we want to interpret scriptures with other scriptures. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, is the Bible. So you need to see what else the Bible says about that theme and that topic. And the third thing is, is to remember that we're not just supposed to be students of the word, but we need to be those who apply what we learn, doers of the word as well. So let's get this verse into context. The story here is... Um, this passage here is Paul is writing this, to, this letter to a, a guy named Timothy. Now, 
Um, of all of the, the letters that Paul wrote, which are, you know, the, the, the books in the, many of the books in the New Testament that are written by Paul were actually letters he wrote to somebody. Two of them were letters that he was writing to church leaders, or we would call them pastors, I suppose. Um, Timothy was one, and the other guy was, was one to a guy named Titus. They were not his biological sons, but he treated them like they were. They, they, it would be fair to say they were sons in the faith. Okay, So he treated them like they were, these young pastors. And <clears throat> so these letters were you know, very personal, very direct, very intimate, rich, really, and they were packed with how to love Jesus, They're really good. So this is Paul talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7. He says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, if there's a big theme in this passage, I could actually, I think we could argue that the big theme is not money here, um, but it's godliness, okay? So the the big theme here is actually godliness, Um, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. We take nothing out of it. It's really, really easy for us to understand with our heads. But our hearts, you know, sometimes just will not contain this great truth. I mean, you've probably never seen a hearse driving on the street with a U-Haul trailer. You know, I mean, you've never seen that quite. And there's an old joke about this, you know, this really wealthy guy, and he got some bad news that the end was coming and he knew he was going to die. So he took a whole bunch of money and he stuffed it in his suitcase and he stuck it up in the attic and his wife says, what are you doing up there? He says, well, I know I'm going soon and when I die, I'm just going to grab that suitcase and take it with me. And of course, time passed and he died and you guess what happened. His wife thought, you know, I'm going to go upstairs. She goes up in the attic and look. Sure enough, there's this bag and it's cash and it's all still there. She said, I told that old fool he should have put it in the basement and grabbed it on his way down. That would have been... <laughs> Wrong direction. We brought nothing into this world. We take nothing out of it. Then in verse 8, he says something that's really kind of profound. He says, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. you believe that? Could you get your mind wrapped around that? Because if we have food and clothing and an iPhone, (laughs) maybe some Netflix and some Red Hots, you know, if we had food and clothing, we could be content with that. And, and, and one of the things that Paul is essentially trying to teach us here is that the richest are not the people that have the most, but they're the people that lead, need the least. The richest people are not the people that, that have the most, but they're the people who, who need the least. Lisa and I just got back from um, a Foursquare convention, which was... Um, several thousand Foursquare pastors from across the United States, and then many from across the world. You might not know this, but our denomination has, we have a couple thousand churches in the United States, but like 20 or 25 or 30, many, 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 many times that many uh, Foursquare churches out and around the world. Way, way bigger footprint out there than back home. And so we had a lot of leaders that came from different parts of the world. And it's kind of fun because they, they come and, and they wear their garb that's their garb their dressy garb. I mean, <clears throat> my garb is a t-shirt and shorts. That's it all the time except for Sunday mornings at 10. Okay, I just want you to know that. The minute I'm done with my sermon, I run home and put on shorts and a t-shirt. 
it's just the way I live. Uh, but these people, you know, they've got their garb, and I don't think they wear this kind of stuff, but they come in all these different colorful. I mean, I think some of the people who come from Africa, they're just really cool. I mean, they're the coolest pajamas you have ever seen. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they come from these different places, and um, they're all, you would never tell from the way they, they show up at these conventions. You know, some of them come from developing nations, and they had nothing there. You know, where they come from, they, 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 they've got dirt floors. There's no electricity. There's no such thing as hot water. There's, you know, there's no such thing as a toilet. And, and these people have none of the things we take for granted. But these people, I'm not kidding you, they are full of joy. They're full of peace. They come walking in with an absolute assurance. And, you know, we come walking in with our Starbucks and, you know, we're kind of ticked off because we had to wait in line. And it's like, and they're just, you know, there is not, the richest, the richest are not those who have the most. But the richest people are those who need the least. And because that's true, discontentment can make a rich person poor. And contentment can make a poor person rich. Paul's saying that when we recognize that when we have food and clothing and shelter, that we can be content with godliness, which brings great gain. And here's how that gain works. Contentment is... is, is not the same, by the way, as laziness or idleness or you know, a lack of ambition or somehow justifying you know, selfish attitudes. That's not what God's talking about here. But true contentment, it, it's, it's, it comes from this Greek word which means sufficient in and of itself. It doesn't need any outside assistance. It's saying, okay. And, and that kind of godly contentment starts a cycle. When you are content like that, a form of godly character start, starts to take shape in your heart which in turn brings more contentment, which brings more godliness. It's a cycle that spins and it grows. And, it's a, and there's an entry point for us that a choice, it's a choice that we have, we have to make. And he goes on to say this in verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich, I can't tell if it's a small little typo in my Bible. It might say the word powerball there. I'm not certain, but powerball. So, so what, 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 what does God tell us happens to those who want to get rich? He says, to those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And there's our verse 10 in context. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then Paul tells you know, Timothy, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And you don't have to raise your hand on this, but you know, how many of you know somebody like that? They've, you know, they've chased it, and because they're chasing money, they've walked away from God. They've, they, they've had a money fight with, with somebody that they loved, and they've lost a friendship. They've got into some sort of financial tension with a family member, and um, they're not speaking anymore. You probably can think the love of money can be a root of all kinds of evil. And when we, when we hear this, it kind of can translate into our minds that you know, money's bad. Money's bad. I mean, we can't have money and we can't have things. It's, it's bad. And I want to say right now, we need to recognize that money, having money, is not bad. Not bad. Um, but loving money can be more dangerous, really, than our minds can get wrapped around. I'm going to talk this out for a couple of minutes because this topic can create some real tension in our souls. And, and, and I really believe to really love and serve God, we need to get this topic right. Because here's what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, you cannot serve 
both God and money. You can't. You know, interesting what Jesus did not say there. He didn't say you can't serve both God and power. He didn't say you can't serve both God and popularity. He didn't say you can't serve both God and sex. He didn't say you can't serve... Uh, just fill in the blank. There's lots of things there that he didn't say. He singled specifically out money. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that money, the reason that he singled it out is because money is the number one competitor for our hearts. I think that it can be the very thing that distracts us from having the true riches that God wants to provide. And we really, really need to get this right. And I think it's, it's, it's easy to get it wrong by heading off into the extremes, both ends of the spectrum. And, you know, in, in, in the church world, if, you're, if, you, if you go to church and you've been in church, churches for a while, you'll know that there are some extremes out there. And um, so I'm, I'm going to just take a minute and there's, there's, talk about those. There's, I'm going to talk about the two extremes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, <clears throat> and I hope I don't step on your toes, but if I do, I want to step on everybody's toes equally here. But okay, so the two extremes. There's one, the first, one extreme is known as the prosperity gospel. And that's a belief system that if I'm godly, if I have enough faith, if I give enough, that God has to make me rich. You know, it's, th- th- there's a lot of problems with that uh, theology. First off, Scripture doesn't teach that, um, but um, you, 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 you can't take that kind of a gospel to a place where people make and live on $3 a day and say, if you just give enough, you're going to have a Rolls Royce. That does not equate. It just will not equate in that circumstance. And I think that that kind of teaching, especially in those kinds of locations, but everywhere, I think that it can become borderline abusive. And um, it's a misunderstanding of the blessings of God. You, you following me on this? Okay, so <clears throat> I know we have a lot of brothers and sisters. Maybe you know people who, who really tend in the spectrum more towards the faith side of the needle. And I'm not, I'm not assaulting that philosophy or that theology. I'm just saying there's a point where it gets past scripture and it's wishful theology. It's just not, and, and, and it can actually hurt people. And I've watched it hurt people. Um, the other end of the extreme is just as hard, and that's the poverty gospel, you know? That's if you're really righteous, then you're going to be poor. If you, if you really love Jesus, then you can't have nice things. There's a sense that if you have something, then you're unrighteous and you're godly. And maybe that philosophy came from another truth, truthism out there, and that is a lot of people who are rich, some people... Some number of people are rich because they cheated people. Not everybody who has money has been cheated. You know, a lot of people work hard, and a lot of people have been blessed. We'll talk about that in a minute or two. So I think that's also a misunderstanding. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament at Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's what God says about that. He says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God doesn't want you poor. Okay, I'm not going to get, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, God's not going to lead you to do something um, that's, that's wrong. It's, we need to be careful to avoid these extremes, these misunderstandings of the truth. So when we recognize that we really are blessed, we don't need to apologize for how God blesses us. You don't, you know, let me say that again. You do not need to apologize for how the Lord has blessed you. I mean, I've seen people who are really, really blessed really become embarrassed by their blessings. You know, but you wouldn't apologize for any other kind of blessing. 
You know, if one of you came to me and you said, hey, Terry, you have, it seems like you have a really wonderful marriage. I wouldn't apologize and say, no, 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 you, you just don't really know. We really hate each other. I, Lisa and I, I mean, no, I'd say, yeah, you know, the Lord blessed me. Uh, he knew me when I was so immature, and he said, I'm going to give you a wife that's going to, you're going to marry up. And, um, and I mean, I, I, I was blessed. I am blessed. And, um, you know, if, if, if you say, you know, you got amazing, amazing kids, I wouldn't say, no, no, you, they're brats and we hate them. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say yeah, they are, they're, 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 they're good kids. They're, they're not kids, but they're good kids. Um, you know, when somebody says to you, you know, you're really healthy. You, you know, you, 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 you're running five-mile runs and you're 75. You've good health. You don't say, no, I'm, I'm a cheater. I cheat at the five-mile. You say, yeah, the Lord has blessed me with low blood pressure. You thank you. Thank the Lord. You know, you got a really nice house. No, no, it's just a dump inside. You should get inside there. It's terrible. No, don't stop. You should stop. You don't need to apologize when God has blessed you. It's not a sin to have something. It's not pride to thank God for how he's blessed you. It's a sin, and it's dangerous to love money. It's more dangerous than we can imagine. So we need to get that perspective really, really right. In verse 17, Paul kind of starts to um, help us with our attitudes here, and he kind of gets up on our grill about how we're to position our hearts um, about the blessings that God has given us. And he says this, verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Wow. I, I, this is a bit of a rabbit trail. I could do a sermon on does God want us to enjoy life. There's something that says, yeah. So enjoyment is a big deal to God. But that's a rabbit trail. Come back off of that. Command those who are rich in the spirit. So for years when I would read this scripture, I'd just kind of run right by it. Why? Because I didn't see myself as rich. You know, rich is somebody else. And that's, you know, I'm here, rich is this much. I'm this much. You know, so I would, you know, do that. But when I read this scripture with a, more of a global context, you know, command those who are rich in this present world. You know, the average person sitting in this room right now or listening to this message has hundreds of dollars of technology in your pocket or in your purse right this moment. You do. The average person. Maybe some of you don't. Um, maybe some of you, it's out of the hundreds and into the thousands, you know. Um, you know and, and here's the deal. Almost half of our world's population lives on under $2.50 a day. Hmm. If you have that technology I just mentioned a minute ago, you're rich. You are rich, you know. Most of you have access to some kind of transportation. You know, if you own your own vehicle, if you own your own vehicle, if you own one I don't care if it's a Rolls Royce or if it barely made it here. If you own one, you are in the top 5% of wealthy people in the world. The top 5%. I mean, um, and, and we don't think we're rich. You know, we read this verse, God must be speaking to somebody else. And I'm thinking, the funny thing is that we, you know, we drive our top five car on the way home from church. We might go past, you know, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine restaurants until we get to that one special restaurant that has something that we want and we go inside there and we sit down and and uh, we look at everything on the menu and uh, we take our time and we can't decide what we want to get this time and then we order it and then somebody else goes out and cooks it for you 
and it comes back perfect, and um, they bring it to you, and in the meantime, they top off your Diet Pepsi, and, um, and then you complain because it took 11 minutes for them to get to you that very thing that you couldn't decide which one you wanted. I mean, we, we don't think it applies to us, um, you know, and, and, then, and then when you're done, you know, you, you get in your top 5% car, and you drive it home to the car's own house. Your car actually has its own house. We call it a garage. Okay, your car. And so you get out of your car, and you walk into your house, and maybe it's a little bit warm, so you flip a little dial on the wall because the AC needs to bump it down a degree or two to get it just more comfortable, or maybe it's too cold. Or maybe you're more of a nerd like me, and you thought ahead, and you get an app on your iPhone and told the AC system at home, kick on, I'm coming home, be ready for me, so that it can be there. And so you walked into your climate-controlled house, and um, then because you had so many Diet Pepsis, you walk into a special room, and there's this machine on the floor. And if you operate it properly, stuff that you don't want in your house just goes away. It just disappears. You don't have to see it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to smell it. Did I say smell in a church sermon? <laughs> and if you're, you know, if you're like maybe like some people who've got excess money to spend, you don't want that particular machine. You want a special one called a composting toilet. Now, I don't get the composting toilet, but that one, you get to keep your stuff right there. (laughs) Rich people don't want to give away their stuff. I'm not that rich. (laughs) Aren't you glad I took you there? Okay, so you get done with that, and now you go into your closet... You walk into your closet, and it's actually a two-story closet, which means you've got two rows of clothes, and you get up in the morning, and you kind of walk up and down, you feel them all, and you look at them all like somehow your finger's going to tell you what to wear, and you stand back, and you say, I don't have a thing to wear. Thank you. (laughs) You're rich. You are rich. We're blessed, and we don't need to apologize for being blessed. We didn't deserve this. We were actually born into it, right? We could have been born somewhere else. We didn't deserve this. We didn't earn this. We work hard, okay? I'm not taking that away. I'm just saying we're blessed. And, um, you know, I need a little bit more to be happy. You know, I mean, discontentment makes rich people poor. Contentment... It can make anybody rich, and we need to get this right. So I'm going to read this verse again, and this time let's read it as if the Lord is speaking to us, because he is. And um, let's see what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world, that's us, that's me, that's you, command us not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Not in wealth, but in God. Not in money, but in God, not in things, but in God, not in this world, but in eternity. Put their hope not in wealth, but in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Wow, I I love that now. Command them not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. Why is it that we tend to put our hope in wealth? Why? You know, when I ask, you know, if, if a little bit more make your life easier. You know, I kind of set you up. I, it's right where I was too. I am too. You know, without reservation, we always go, yeah, a little bit more would make it. Why? Why? Because money promises what only God can provide. Money makes promises to you 
things it will never deliver on, but only God can really provide. You know, you can't serve both God and money. What what does money promise? Money promises that if you have enough, you will be happy. How much do you need to be happy? Just a little bit more. Just, Just a little bit more. A little bit more. And money promises what only God can provide. You know, if I finally get the car paid off, you know, which is good, pay your car off, you know, don't be subject to the, to the lender. But we think, if I can only get the car paid off, I just need a little bit more. I finally get the credit card paid off. When I finally get X fill-in-the-blank amount of money sitting in my savings account, you know, I'll be I'll just a little bit more. Money promises things that only God can provide. And when we really think that we need more money to be happy, to be satisfied, to be secure, we're deceived. When we really think that, we're deceived. We're under the power of, we're under the influence of money. But money will never meet our deepest needs. It's Jesus, Jesus who meets our deepest needs. Let me say it again because some of you need to hear this. Money will not meet our deepest needs. Only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. Money will not keep your kids off of drugs. Money will not make you love your spouse anymore. Money is not going to make you, know, you more secure in this world. Only Jesus can do this. And here's the crazy thing. When you don't have a lot of Jesus in your life, money seems like a real good thing. Seems like a, you know, I, I need a little bit more. But when you have more Jesus, then you can be content with what you have because godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm here to tell you, if you're searching for something that, that money will never, ever, never, never, ever, 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 ever satisfy and scratch that itch. What you need is more Jesus. You, know? you need more of his grace. You need more of his peace. You need more of his assurance. You need more of his presence. You need more of his promise. You need more of his blood. You need more of his forgiveness. You need more of his mercy. You need more of his grace. That's what you need more of because he's your rock. He's your sustainer. He's your foundation. He's your hope. He's your forever. And when you have more of him, then you're not going to be craving um, everything else. And sometimes when you have more of him, he does start to give you more of everything else. I've seen that happen. He wants us to enjoy life. And, and when that happens, you realize that what he's given to you isn't just for me. It isn't just for me. I can enjoy it. I can be blessed by it. And I, I can have it, but it doesn't have me. I have it, but I, I don't have to love it. And some of you, you know, you, you get this right now. And some of you, you know, you'll get this someday. And, and when you do get this, I mean, you walk into kind of freedom. You will walk in a kind of freedom. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be blessed. Um, it's wrong to love it. Then in verse 18, here's what Paul says to the rich people. He says, command them. This is the rich people, right? That's us. To do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Let's look at that again. He tells me and he tells you to do good, be rich, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The life that is truly life. That's the life that we've been searching for that you can't find in material things ever. 
They never satisfy. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share and to find the life that is truly life. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey. I'm going to spend too much time on this. But it's not real pretty, um, you know, on this topic. I mean, when I became a follower of Jesus, and, and I remember the first time I heard a preacher talking about the tithe, I thought, what are you talking about? That's crazy. It's like, you know, you, you know and, and, and so I thought, well, okay, I... I should trust this guy up front, but it's my responsibility to check out what he tells me. Is this what God actually says in his word? And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young as a Christian, but I knew that much. And uh, so I did some homework. I, did, I studied it, and I found out that even before the law, that um, they gave 10% back to God as an act of worship and trust and faith. And then, of course, the law brings it on. And then, and then even in the New Testament, here's Jesus talking about it. He confirms it, and you can find out, and you can read this yourself, Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus says, yeah, you need to be tithing. Um, and I read that all, and I thought, hmm, I don't think I like that, because I didn't want to find that truth. I'm, I didn't want to do that. Why didn't I want to do that? Because I loved money, and because I trusted myself. I thought, well, I get the idea here, God, but if I take over managing my financial future. I can do a better job at this than you can. That's really what I thought. And I didn't like what I found out when I read the Word of God. By the way, do you realize that even our money tells us not to trust in money? Leave that up there for a minute. Even our money tells us, don't trust in me. Here's a picture of the White House. Don't trust in the White House. <laughs> if you could see it up close, that's a picture I took of a $20 bill on my desk yesterday. There's a bunch of little 20s in yellow ink to keep it from being counterfeited. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. Don't trust me. It's saying, in God we trust. I love the fact. And I think, you know, there's probably a point where some politicians, some bureaucrats somewhere decided to put that on our money. You should, you know, maybe you could study that out and find out where that happened. I don't think that's what happened. I really think the Holy Spirit put this on our money to, so that the money could tell us, don't trust in me. Put your trust in God. I love that. I'm going to collect all the $20 bills I can now. <laughs> trust in, in, in God. It, it, it's the sin of loving money does this to us. It makes us trust ourselves instead of God. And that's what I did for a period of time until, until the point came where I was absolutely convicted and the Holy Spirit was saying to me, you know, Terry, you have a wife, you're going to have children. Where are you leading them? You're going to lead them off on your own way or, or not? And listen, I'm not doing this message and I'm not bringing in tithing now because the church is broke and we need money. This church is healthy financially. Thank you very much for being faithful. You're a faithful church. And we have a church council that reviews where the money goes and it's, it's done above board and, and we're healthy here. This, is not, this message isn't coming out now because we need money. This message, it's coming out now because it's the word of God. And this is what the Holy Spirit took us to today on the topic. And what I understand now, what I understand today is that the antidote for the love of money is not more money. It's Generosity. And the tithe is one of the best tools that God uses for effective, you know, for, for spiritual growth. Every time when you, when you receive income, every time, the first 10% goes to the Lord. 
And the very first time we ever wrote a tithe check, you know, my salary was $165.50, $16.50 a week. I got weekly paychecks at the time. That was a lot of money. We were already living a life on popcorn and hamburger gravy. And, um, you know, 16 bucks is a lot of popcorn. I mean, <laughs> it was a lot of money to us. And I remember thinking, you know, this is, this is not easy. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of trembling and fear and nerves going on. But when that, when that offering went in the bucket, we just owned a sense of peace and, and trust and um, obedience. And, you know, it was really, really powerful. Why was it so powerful? Because I believe for the very first time in my life, the Lord snapped off something spiritual from my, my soul that was the love of money. He snapped it off. And now I can tell you this for 40 years-ish, we have been faithful and we have not, have never stopped tithing. And I'm not telling you that because I'm not positioning myself here as some sort of model for you. I'm just telling you that you are, you're, you're looking at a leader who believes this, not because I take my paycheck from the tithes and offerings, but because of what it did for my family and my children and what it freed up in us spiritually. I would never go any other way. And listen, I left a very high-paying, lucrative career, took a paycheck to come into ministry. And I don't share that other than to tell you this was not a financial angle for me. It just wasn't. Um, and every, So now for 40 years, the first 10%, it's, it's an act of worship to us. And we believe in this truth so much, husband and wife. We believe in this truth so much we raise our children understanding these things, you know. Command these rich people, don't put your hope in money, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Tell those rich people, be good, be generous. We raised our children understanding this about money. And I could cite examples with our kids when we, we talked about there was a ministry need out there. And uh, we talked about not the tithe, but the offering, which is something past a tithe. And we thought, you know, as a family, do we believe in this? Do we believe the Lord is speaking to us? And the family, including our children who are young, they said to us, you know, yeah, we really need to give a significant gift to them. We didn't have cash to do it with. They said, well, let's, you know, as a family, we, we have family tradition of going camping. We had a travel trailer at that point that was probably a year and a half old, brand new one that we had bought, paid for. The kid said, sell the trailer and give the money. <laughs> you just don't do that when you love money. You just don't do that. And um, they get it. The love of money is the root of all types of evil. How do we know if we love money? We never have enough. We're never satisfied with enough. And um, I can tell you that in my life, the tithe and generosity helped break that. And to this day, I'm a joyful giver. I'm a joyful giver. I have peace in my soul. When our economy goes nuts and employers say things and they talk about layoffs and, and when they say those kinds of things that could affect my children, I believe that the Lord is going to take care of them because he's kept his promises and he's faithful. Do good, be generous in good deeds, be generous and willing to share because then you will take hold of life that is truly life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us um, help us followers, Jesus, to, to get this right. Help us to get this right. I want to pray, Lord, for people in this room who 
have put their trust in you, God. And still, they see financial challenge. God, your word promised you. Make some promises. You said, test me in this. See if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that can't be contained. You've made that promise. Sometimes we look for the promise to happen in our checking account, but Lord, help us to see you rebuke the devourer. Help us to see you, Lord, keep that promise. But Lord, beyond that, I want to pray for people in this room who maybe have sensed that the Holy Spirit has said to them today that they've tilted their needle a little bit too far towards trusting in money rather than trusting in you. God, I pray that you would help us to get this right. Forgive us, Lord, when we put anything and anyone into a place that you belong. And I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stay?